Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Anthony Hackett and this is the Is That a Thing podcast. The podcast where we use the sharp knife of evidence to dissect dogma and controversies in emergency medicine and critical care. Although we are physicians, this podcast is not medical advice, but aims to discuss and make available the latest and hottest topics in academics in real time to help influence the best practice at the patient's bedside. Hey everybody, it's Anthony Hackett here with Dr. Hugh Hiller. About to record another episode of our podcast. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about miscarriages and first trimester vaginal bleeding uh, and what we can do to make that better. So hey Hugh, thanks for joining me again, man. Yeah, hey man. I'm actually really excited about this one. You and I trained at a place where Gosh, how many of these do we see a shift? A dozen, oh, maybe? Maybe you more. Know? And also we had this joke that if you saw nine first trimester bleeds, then the gods would give you a procedure, which is usually generally true, right? So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. You get one You get one central line for every 10 uh, <laughs> yeah. vaginal bleeds. But in, in all seriousness, man, it's such a common problem that comes to the emergency department. And it seems like the data that people throw around, myself included, is probably just completely fake news. Like nobody really knows what they're talking about with this. It was it was on a personal note, it became kind of a, a thing for me and my wife. We had our first daughter like three years ago, and then we we had two miscarriages in between. And when we would go to OB, that each OB would give us kind of a different like well, it's 50% and 30% of the time it happens 50% of the time. And it was like, yeah. you know, my wife's a nurse practitioner and obviously me being an ER doc, I was like, this data doesn't make any sense. That and we sense. were very confused and we we're like, well, when right. do we start trying again? How does, how does this whole thing work? Like, what do we need to have testing? Is there an anatomic thing? All this stuff. And they just, there, there wasn't a lot out there. So it's very, very, very interesting. And my wife is now 36 weeks pregnant, so it worked out, Amazing. and we're, we're, yeah, we're about to uh, go back into the tunnel of sadness of a newborn. But yeah. there's, a lot of, <laughs> there's a, like a lot of data out there that, that nobody seems to, to put together. So a little review of physiology and then a review of what we can do for these totally. patients, I think, is totally worth it. And I, and I think it's interesting because here we are having some confusion, but you can imagine the first time parent who's trying to get pregnant. And I think the most common thing that we see is usually this first trimester vaginal bleeding. And I think most people who don't work in the ER would be surprised to, to hear that we probably see on average, even at a level one or level two center, man, I probably see three of these shift. And that's still yeah. at a place that's super busy. And I think the most common question is always like, A1, can I try again? And then B, what's wrong with me? Right. right. And so there, the good answer is there's nothing wrong with you. It's actually just has to do with physiology and the fact that it's actually kind of hard to achieve a normal pregnancy unless you're on meth and drunk. We yeah, found that right. It seems to be a correlation. Right. And, you know, <laughs> so. right, right. And, but you know, you're, you're right, man. I, I try to tell, obviously it's a very emotional patient encounter for them. They're freaking out. They think something's terribly wrong with them. They think they're never going to be able to have kids. And I try to tell them, unbelievable that we're able to get pregnant in the first totally. place. You know, totally. all of the things you remember back to embryology and you remember the neural tube closing and all this joining of cells and then exploding of cells and all this crazy stuff that you're like, how does this ever even happen? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a miracle that it ever even happens. And it has yeah. to happen at the right time in the right. in the menstrual cycle. And if it doesn't, I mean, it's just not going to happen. So right. it's really fascinating how many successful pregnancies actually occur based on that. But of course, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're just here to talk about you know miscarriage and stuff like that. But I think I just really think it's fascinating. And when we think about the normal physiology, right, just as a reminder, I think some 
folks listening probably haven't heard this since, you know, medical school. And so we just kind of wanted to go over a very brief overview just so we can talk about the physiology of miscarriage. And we're talking about miscarriage in the first trimester, and we're talking specifically about vaginal bleeding in the first trimester. We're not talking about second and third, because that's a whole other thing, right? So remember that when you have a normal menstrual cycle, you have two phases. You have your follicular phase and your luteal phase, right? Your follicular phase occurs from day one to 14, right? And that's basically stimulated by rising estrogen levels. And so that's sort of preparing that uterus to receive the embryo when it comes along. And that embryo can really only implant once fertilized, really can only implant at around day 16 to maybe day 18 to 20. And that's that's it. And the conditions have to be ideal for that embryo to basically implant. And so that that's where our luteal phase begins, right? And that whole cycle is basically controlled by progesterone under the influence of the corpus luteum, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And interestingly enough, this corpus luteum in non-pregnancy secretes progesterone basically until the end of the menstrual cycle. And when it stops secreting progesterone, the endometrial tissue sloughs off and that's your menses, right? right. In pregnancy, what happens is the normal placenta, right? So the little blastocyst, that's all our bundle of cells, implants into that endometrium. And that little blastocyst will eventually become the embryo and placenta. Well, that embryo and placenta cannot create its own progesterone to maintain the endometrial lining until about week six to eight, maybe. And so the job of that is actually the corpus luteum cyst or the corpus luteum itself. And that basically under the control of HCG that's produced by that implanted embryo, and HCG is that hormone we're looking for when we look for pregnancy, the embryo produces all this HCG, and then that tells that corpus luteum to secrete more progesterone. And that thing can pump out progesterone every single day. So progesterone is really important in maintaining the function and essentially adherence of that embryo, placenta, uh, and then soon to be fetus unit, basically to the wall of the endometrium, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, if, if, that isn't the best physiology summary, man. I don't know what it is. Also, unbelievable that that works. You know what I yeah, mean? Right. And it's crazy that all that's happening during the time that you don't know you're pregnant yet. You know right. what I mean? Exactly. It's crazy, and, man. And interestingly enough, as usual, I kind of got down into a literal rabbit hole here and actually was looking at pregnancy testing and kind of how they used to do that. And have you ever heard this, the rabbit died thing? Have you ever heard that? No, what is that? No, it's an old thing my mom used to say when I'd say what's when I was a little kid and my mom, of course, my mom's on every single podcast, but she'd be happy to know, <laughs> you know, the neighbor, you know, Mrs. Smith, oh, the rabbit died. And I was always like, what the heck does that mean? Well, back in the day, apparently they used to take the urine of pregnant women and inject it into mice or rabbits. And then they would sacrifice the rabbit or mice and they would look and see if it caused them to have large ovaries. And if it did, that meant that the person whose urine they had injected was positive for HCG. What? No Yeah, way. so this really? whole thing about, dude, I swear, look it up, the rabbit died. My <laughs> mom would go, Mrs. Smith, the rabbit died. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that was wow. the era of HCG testing prior to the test strips. And that was probably the, the I guess, up until the 60s, until they actually developed a point of care HCG testing that you can actually just show HCG. But, but the effect yeah. of HCG basically will, is apparent in both humans and other mammals as well for the wow. same reason. So wow, that's that crazy. Fascinating. Yeah, that's crazy. And really, progesterone is is the key moving forward, which is a nice little foreshadowing and where we're getting to right. eventually if, if, if progesterone can be helpful. But if we just uh, jump off that physiology and then talk about the miscarriage data in general, I think we throw around a lot of numbers that we don't really know kind of where they fit. And people are looking for a number. What's my chance of getting pregnant? Right. 
I'm bleeding right now. What's my chance of losing this pregnancy? When should I start trying to get? They want numbers. And it's hard to come up with those numbers. But miscarriage in general, what we found was that one in four recognized pregnancies end in loss, which again, not surprising. I'm actually kind of surprised that number isn't higher with all the things that have to align perfectly. And 98% of these losses happen in the first first trimester. There... The, the frequent, when you get down more than that, like if you try to get into the real weeds of the frequency of miscarriage, I mean, it is hard to get two sets of data that actually line up. But maybe it sounds like it may be somewhere around 10 to 15%. Would you agree with that number of all pregnancies ended? Long? Miscarriage rate. Right? Miscarriage rate, yeah. Yes, I agree. Ten, somewhere between 10 and 15% of uh, overall miscarriage rate. Although some. Things say even up to 50%, but I think that's probably an extreme end of the bell curve. Most of the data seems to be like 10 to 15, maybe 20% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. And that's what we found in a bunch of large studies with with 15% sort of being the average. And then it was interesting because it, fascinatingly enough, the rate of pregnancy for all comers, if you look at all age groups, was like only 25% successful pregnancies actually occur when attempted. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, which is... Again, super low, and not to use my anecdotes, but we I will throughout this entire podcast. But you know, when my wife and I had our first our daughter, like it, everything was easy. You just get pregnant, you have a kid. You know, I mean, she got really yeah. sick on the back and got preeclampsia and help and ICU and all that stuff. But the front end <laughs> of the deal. pregnancy was super easy, yeah. and then yeah. we thought it was just going to be that way again. And then we had miscarriage and miscarriage, and you right. know, then this this current pregnancy where she's at 36 weeks, she had some vaginal bleeding at the beginning of it, and like. You're like, whoa, why is this so hard? Like, it was so easy the first time. And I, I think there's also a little bit of a, a cultural stigma around it, too. I don't think people really talk about pregnancy loss. You know, I tried to be a little bit, to be relatively open with it with my friends and colleagues. And then just because I, I feel like there's this unnecessary stigma around pregnancy loss. And once you start talking about it, people, oh, yeah, we had a couple uh, miscarriages or a couple losses when we were trying for And you're like, nobody ever talks about it, uh, probably because it's an emotional thing. But I think also because there's this sense of, is it? Is it my fault, specifically for mothers, is this is this my fault that this loss? And, and when we looked into the causes of miscarriage, again, it's kind of hard uh, to nail down hard data, but it, it looks not surprisingly about 70% are uh, chromosomal abnormalities with with that aneuploidy making up about 50% of all miscarriages, which... Yeah, not just abnormal chromosome numbers right. is what you're saying. Basically. Right, yeah, yeah. Too many, too little, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, and that's yeah. a that's a mechanism by the body basically, and that's not anything to do with the patient or the person who, who is actually having the pregnancy. That's just a protective mechanism. So apart right. from those, there were some interesting factors. I mean, you looked into anatomic factors too, which was actually kind of fascinating to me. What? Yeah, think? yeah, very interesting. You think about fibroids. I think we all know these anecdotal patients that are you know G seventeen P zeros <laughs> that have gigantic fibroids that they keep, and you're like, it's got to be the fibroids. But it's interesting that the fibroids. It really depends on the location of the fibroid. If we're talking about specific anatomic things, that not all fibroids cause fertility issues at all. It has to kind of violate the inner uterine cavity or compromise blood supply. So the vast majority of fibroids don't cause any issues. It's these gigantic ones and and ones that are in the right spot. There was an interesting study that looked at, of miscarriages, how how many women had a anatomic abnormality that at least... We can't say caused it, but maybe contributed to it. There's some correlation. They found that 15% of women had intrauterine hegens, 14% with fibroids, 3% with the intrauterine septum, and 2% with endometrial polyps. Which so really yeah, not that much. I mean, yeah, if you add those numbers up, right. the most common 
uterine anomaly or, or anatomic anomaly is nothing, right? So right. Just really like not. random chance stuff. Yeah. You wonder about the incidence of those existing in the baseline population mm-hmm. and then there being a miscarriage. And we just seem to say the two are correlated, but there really doesn't seem to be a huge correlation. And of those, probably those were discovered on essentially imaging, which most women don't have anyway. So maybe the incidence even higher, we just don't know. So it sounds like they don't really affect it. But interestingly enough, it it seems like for those women that had recurrent miscarriages too, that that about 15 to 20% of those women actually had antiphospholipid antibodies, which was interesting. So crazy. And I think that has to do with maybe more of the initial adherence of the An implantation yeah right. implantation and and development of, of a viable placenta into the endometrium that may yeah. be antiphospholipid antibodies or like factor 5 Leiden or something that would cause some issues with that super high flow state um, and that's the thought behind using when we'll get into this in a minute but the thought behind using things like aspirin or heparins yeah. or heparinoids to promote pregnancy implantation is that the microvasculature at the level of the villi that are implanting into this endometrium, maybe there's tiny blood clots and it's not right. adhering and that sort of thing, right? And so right. that's where that antiphospholipid thing comes in. And interestingly enough, too, when we looked into the aspirin data, some of these studies, they looked at inflammatory mediators in women. And what they found, too, was that if your BMI is really high or really low, or you have evidence of high inflammation. They looked at CRPs. I was looking at one study, they looked at all these CRPs, ESRs, all that stuff. And they found that women with higher evidence of inflammation had a lower rate of successful pregnancy, which is interesting because some authorities think that perhaps the embryo itself is seen as an inflammatory, essentially foreign object. And so the body essentially rejects it. It's almost in an immune fashion in some cases, but not all cases. Most cases are probably aneuploidy, like you said, but of those cases that are not, probably that has to do with inflammation, body mass index, and in some cases, this antiphospholipid as well, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then then obviously there's the the obvious things that increase your risk of miscarriage, like trauma, yeah. drinking, smoking, drug use, et cetera, Even sleep, et cetera. actually. Yeah. But I would call those modifiable risk factors, actually. Right. I think if you're going to counsel your women who have first trimester vaginal bleeding who want to get pregnant again, well, I think it's important to say, hey, listen, like if you smoke, drink, have a night shift schedule, experience a lot of stress, you can eliminate all these sort of things because they have been linked to first trimester loss, right? Yeah, totally. But I, I think the 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 big thing once we get kind of past the anatomic issue and the modifiable risk factors is when patients come in with vaginal bleeding, they want to know what their chances of having a miscarriage. And if we talk about why a lot of people are unhappy um, with emergency medicine care and something that I think I'm starting to become more acutely aware of is that we have different goals than patients have when they come in. Like we're trying to rule out life-threatening stuff. They want to answer what's going on. When we walk into the room of a first trimester vaginal bleeder, I know that I'm not going to give her any definitive answers, but she's probably there for definitive answers. You know what I mean? And so the best I can do, the best that we can do is try to provide some amount of data we talked about before. So when a patient comes in with vaginal bleeding, I think the, the question that most of them have is, am I having a miscarriage right now? And we say, well, I'm not sure. It depends. And then they say, okay, well, what are the chances of this progressing to miscarriage? And again, mm-hmm. data is a little bit all over the place, but it looks like uh, there's really big studies on this. And if you kind of look at that data all together, it looks that like about 10 to 20% of those pregnancies will eventually end in loss with any kind of vaginal bleeding. 
Well, first eventually trimester vaginal bleeding. First. And so to summarize, you basically 10 to 20% of any woman experiencing first trimester vaginal bleeding, but right, 80% right. chance of success on the, in the worst case. Which is pretty, pretty remarkable. First trimester vaginal bleeding can just be part of impa- implantation bleeding or right. it can be kind of a normal physiologic thing. And then 80%, that's, that's way higher than I've quoted patients. Before we started digging me, me into too, this. actually. I always I, kind of yeah. was at 30 or 40%. That's what I we said. Gonna, yeah. That's what we were taught, I think. But everything in medicine, right, I always made this joke. You can tell when, when someone went to residency by the cardiac enzymes they order, but also by like anecdotes <laughs> yeah. that they tell people. So I think yeah, that's yeah. kind of a late 90s, early 2000s, <laughs> yeah. things people learned and never really looked up. But that's why yeah, we did right. this podcast, right? So exactly. interestingly, 80% success rate, right? To separate it out, implantation bleeding usually occurs pretty early, like within the first couple of weeks. But it seems like from the data that we found, late-term bleeding, like up to four to six weeks, those have a little bit of a higher risk of, of pregnancy loss, right? Right. Even to the four, six, eight-week marks. If you have vaginal bleeding at six to eight weeks, that's your highest likelihood of pregnancy loss associated with that vaginal bleeding. Again, I think it's just because that's when the majority of miscarriages happen is at the six to eight, yes. eight-week mark. But even at that point, I mean, the the worst it probably is 20%, right? Like 80% right. of them probably still going to know. I can't tell you how many patients I've told, hey, one third of the time, first trimester vaginal bleeding ends in miscarriage, but that means two thirds of the time it will go on to normal. Well, that's that doesn't seem right. It's probably even better than that. You know, I might I yeah. might start saying 20% of the yeah. time on the high end of things, but I mean, it's, it's, it's better. So I think having some data that you can tell these patients, like saying 20% of the time, this ends in pregnancy loss. 80% of the time at the worst. Like five yeah. different studies that were huge and they all showed somewhere between 10 and 20%. Right. So I think right. at the worst, 20%, right? Yeah. 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 First and, time too. And even just giving them that data, I think is huge. So say, yeah. being able to say 10 to 20% of the time, this ends in loss, but that means 80 to 90% of the time, this pregnancy will go on and be completely normal and be fine. But true. And what did... What did you find out about the whole subchorionic thing? Because patients always ask me, and I, we see a lot of subchorionics, and patients are always like, hey, is this going to lead to a miscarriage? And traditionally, I had told them what I was taught, which is not exactly true. Yeah. But but what we found was a little bit more interesting, right? Yeah, way more interesting, man. So I think anecdotally is probably the most common abnormality that we see on those transvaginal ultrasounds as it comes back with a subchorionic hematoma. I mean, you and I train at the same place and with the same people. So I was always taught that that really increased your risk of uh, miscarriage. Any any subchorionic hematoma was like, yeah. oh God, yeah. man, that's even worse than one third. Maybe that's 50-50. But uh, the incidence of these varies greatly. If you look at these big studies, somewhere between 8 and 48% of first trimester vaginal bleeding will have a concomitant subchorionic hematoma. And it th- there's one very interesting study that looked at the size of the subchorionic hematoma, which I thought was a great, great study. And they found that if the subchorionic hematoma is, is less than 25% of that total width, they, there's no increased risk of miscarriage. So they of can, the placenta. Like of the placenta. Yeah. Width of yeah. the placenta. Those are probably just associated with implantation or something. Right. And that's not really right. even a real, it is yeah. a subchorionic hematoma, but it, it's not really even a factor in miscarriage, right? So the right. bigger ones, that's when it actually matters. And at that, what did you find like right. as far it, as the percentage increase? Yeah. Now, when you look at the bigger subchorionic hematomas, greater than 25%, the presence of one of those doubles the risk of miscarriage, but it takes it from their data saying 9%, again, 10 to 20%. They said that all comers would have a 9% rate of miscarriage, but those with a large subchorionic hematoma would have a miscarriage rate of 18%. Still way better than I thought it was. Right. And still at that 20% number, and maybe that's part of what that 20% number actually even approximates, right? So so basically, if you have a subchorionic or you have any vaginal bleeding, 
really independent of the size, unless it's a small subchorionic, the, the risk is probably low. But if it's yeah. a larger subchorionic or any vaginal bleeding, the risk is about 20% that you may have a pregnancy loss, right? Right. Yeah, still 20%. So still still yeah. pretty darn good. And then we were going to talk about Rogam and pregnant vaginal bleeding. And then you and I both, I mean, God, man, I went down oh. such a rabbit hole on this. And it is fascinating. And I don't know that we have enough time to, to talk about it entirely on this one. The answer is yes, give it. And I yep. think... My answer is probably 300 for everything, although maybe you don't need 300 for everything uh, as far as we dosing goes. The rabbit is still alive on that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll have to dig into that. We'll have to dig into that yeah. a lot. But I mean, the RH stuff and the rogue game and all this stuff mm-hmm. is, is incredibly fascinating. But in the interest of time, I think where the real money is at, where we can actually do more than just be better at counseling, which I think is a big thing. The big one is recurrent pregnancy loss. Yeah. And that, that's really where the that's really where the money is. And these patients are are extraordinarily anxious. Like I told you, we had our first child fine, and then we had two miscarriages. One of them was late and needed a DNC, and then we had a lot of trouble getting pregnant. And so we were a pretty anxious couple. We thought that we were only going to get one kid, and, and we didn't you know all the data too. You know what I mean? Right. It's hard to believe it, even in that case. So right, right. But there's a big study that showed that patients with two plus losses, seventy one percent of those patients eventually are able to get pregnant. Which is great news. Yeah, that alone is great data just to give your recurrent pregnancy loss patient that, hey, about 70% of patients that have multiple losses can still get pregnant. And here are some things that you can do. Your modifiable risk factors of no tobacco, no alcohol, no drugs, lose some weight, live a healthy lifestyle. All those things positively impact probably more than anything that we can do for you. You know, Anything that we can give a patient actually is what they – just medicine in general, right? Yeah. We can't give them a drug that's going to do anything better than their own lifestyle modifications, which right. is fascinating. Right, which is amazing. <laughs> we, we, we're just, we're just kind of toiling against the machine and, and throwing things yeah. at people and probably not making that much of a difference. And then yeah. you either die or you get better, you know? Sisyphus. Like yeah, Sisyphus. Up the hill I say that. Just him. The amount of times that I refer to Sisyphus, you know, where I'm like working in ERs like being Sisyphus where you just – Roll it up the hill. There's 14 in the waiting room. And when you leave, there's 18 in the waiting Roll room. Back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But when we talk about things that we can actually give to pregnant vaginal bleeding patients is progesterone. And this came to light with me when we were on um, try number three for this current pregnancy. And this is going to be terrible. The, it's starting all over again. She went back to her high risk OB and he put her on progesterone. And I was like, what? What are you doing? Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, progesterone, it, it decreases your risk. In recurrent pregnancy loss, it, it decreases your risk of loss. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Put it on prednisone. Or I mean, not, not prednisone. You know I love steroids. I can't steroids help Steroids are good for everything. <laughs> progesterone. And here we are at 36 weeks. And now obviously, that, that's very anecdotal and not evidence-based. But, I mean, I, I had never heard of it. I had never heard of it. Oh, yeah. And never and, done it. And you, you are the one who turned me on to that as far as that's an interesting topic. Because, you know, where I work, we don't have – we have OB, obviously, but they're in a separate sort of silo than we are. And I rarely call them unless I really need something like yeah. a birth or an ectopic is really, or it's a DNC. And that's that's it. I mean, the rest of it we do ourselves. Right. And I think we are kind of siloed because we deal with this stuff on our own. And so I started, that's how this whole podcast got started was this progesterone question. It was fascinating. Yeah. And I, I, I've asked friends of mine that are OBs and it, the opinion is mixed right. and kind of really like hotly controversial. And it makes sense, right? Because we talked about earlier, the physiology of early pregnancy is that the placenta itself cannot produce enough progesterone. The HCG stimulates the production of progesterone. 
and that progesterone promotes implantation and healthy endometrial lining. So that would make a lot of sense if we just gave people progesterone, right? Yeah. That's one of the reasons I like it so much is because physiologically it makes sense. Right. And then if you look at the data, there actually is some good data behind it. This PROMISE trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2015 is kind of the big one where they looked at women that had three plus miscarriages, at least three miscarriages that were trying to conceive naturally. And they randomized them to 400 milligrams twice a day of intravaginal progesterone versus placebo. And they found a 66% live birth rate in the treatment group and a 63% in the placebo group, which did not reach statistical significance. But they found when they did a subgroup analysis, which I know I say subgroup analysis and Anthony turns green and gets upset because he hates (laughs) subgroup analyses because they're not statistically sound, which is looking fair. (laughs) Right, right, right. We got to find something out of this data. (laughs) But when they looked at it, there was a trend towards benefit in patients with more miscarriages, namely those with with four or more, which again, kind of physiologically makes sense because those might be the patients that are actually having some luteal phase uh, defects. Right. And if you think about that, what you talk about earlier, that most first trimester miscarriages are the result of chromosomal abnormalities. Once you get past that one and you've got multiple, then it might be a luteal phase defect, like you said. And I think that's what you found in further studies, which we're going to talk about too, is that it's not really for the person who had one miscarriage, one pregnancy loss. It seems to have benefit in the patients who had a higher rate of miscarriages. Right. Right. Is that true? Yeah. Because if you played the data, like you said, if 70% are chromosomal abnormalities, progesterone, I keep wanting to say prednisone, man, I can't get my head off steroids, but but progesterone is not going to impact those positively, right? Like you're not going to be able to progesterone your way through a chromosomal abnormality that's not going to help at all right but it's the people that have you these could probably steroids your way through it though probably could with that's something we should look at i mean steroids are good for everything sore throats vaginal bleeding the whole thing all it's all Whatever. good yeah but in 2019 they had this multi-center study as well if we if we look at more data on this where they randomized people to 400 intravaginal bid of progesterone uh, to placebo from vaginal bleeding so this one was different it was from day one of vaginal bleeding through 16 weeks and their primary outcome was was a live baby after 34 weeks. The incidence of live births after at least 34 weeks of gestation was 75% in the progesterone group and 72% in the placebo group. Again, not statistically significant, but another subgroup analysis shows a trend towards benefit in patients with previous miscarriages. Two big things that I take out of this data. Number one, again, the trend towards recurrent pregnancy loss and progesterone maybe being a thing. Number two, that 75% of their patients that had vaginal bleeding went on to have a term live birth. Right. More data to show that vaginal bleeding is not the kiss of death that maybe we have been selling it as. And then if we really get into to what to do with this data, it's kind of hard for us to say, based off these two studies, whether this data is good or not. But then the NICE study from the British Medicine Journal came out in 2021. They only offered progesterone to patients who had already had a miscarriage. And they they found that there there was a little bit of a benefit if you've had... In women with previous miscarriages, in, kind of like we knew from those prior exactly. 2019, and not 2019 studies in New England Journal studies. Right, exactly, exactly. And, right. and, and then... 
if you look at how we need to give this progesterone, um, if we look at orally versus vaginally, all of those studies were vaginal uh, progesterone, but there is a, a trial that was published in 2021 where they compared oral and vaginal, and mm-hmm. there was no difference. And this was, a, this was a very small study published in India, but there was no difference in success rates between oral and vaginal pro, uh, progesterone, which... I think or would probably have a little bit more of a, uh, a higher compliance. And if we were to do yeah. something, I think oral progesterone would probably be, would probably be the route to go. So yeah, especially in some of these BID dosing regimens for women right. who work or whatever, I feel like that's kind of a pain to do that yeah. rather than just take a pill. Right. So, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think we think enough about not to go down another side road, but we don't think enough about difficulty of dosing and difficulty of routes of administration, like Keflex QID. I recently stepped on a nail and ended up getting Keflex. And like, I was like, there's no way I'm taking this four times a day. Like, no, no, man, I, you know, dude, that's why I actually changed my cephalosporin of choice for UTIs to Duracephal twice a day. Me too. And it's amazing. And patients are always like, man, I don't take this four times a day. It's become such a thing. I'm like, why didn't we just check this out before? Nobody. Yeah. Basically the same. Right. And nobody's taking a pill four times a day. Same way, like orally versus intravaginally. Come on. If if orally is not inferior, it's way easier, you know? Right. And I don't think you can do that. People can't even monitor their blood pressure twice a day for two weeks. They're crying out loud. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, right. 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 Well, maybe we'd so. have some success. And so yeah. my take on all this data, when you look at these three big studies, two in the New England Journal, one in the British Medical Journal, I think there's a there's a fair trend of benefit in two plus pregnancy loss. Right? Yeah. 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 Right. I, so I think it's something that we should we should totally consider and and obviously maybe discuss with our OB colleagues to, so that we're not putting a bunch of patients on progesterone and then they're getting them in, in clinic for their repeat ACG. Like, and they're like, what is going on? You know what I mean? <laughs> probably we're talking to them about it, but I think it's reasonable, man. We probably see more miscarriage. Well, I don't know. Mean, I don't have data to support it, but bleeding, we probably do, right? We probably we see probably more first trimester bleeding. Yeah. Well, especially so, in the age of post COVID when nobody can have an appointment with their primary right. care OB doctor. Right. That's I've seen so much lately. I mean, the past two years I've, I really see like four or five a day sometimes in the max and on average about three. But there are days when I'm like, man, where are these people? And they're like, I have an appointment with my OB in 10 weeks. I'm like, man, you got (laughs) to, I don't know what's going on. Right. And so we're the, we're the final common pathway for people that don't know what to do. So we see a lot of first trimester vaginal bleeding. And if we can impact this with progesterone and get on the same page of music with our OB folks that we're going to refer to, I think it's a pretty viable option. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, man. I think the way to go about it would be to talk to your OB colleagues and say, hey, what's the ideal route in dosing for these patients? And because some people say 400, some people say 600, BID versus QD. Regardless, I think you have to standardize that with your OB colleagues who in using their evidence and our evidence, which is mostly their evidence. And then I think you have to think about what's the what's the risk, right? The risk mainly is probably clotting, but much less than estrogen. And so if patients have any prior history of DVTPE or any clotting disorder that's inherent, then I'm probably going to put them on intravaginal estrogen if if that becomes a standard of care in the emergency department. Right. So I think you have to weigh it just like any other drug. And I, I just don't want to give somebody a blood clot for something that may not have very good benefit. And then secondarily, for the patients who have one miscarriage, I'm just I would be more likely to just tell them to keep trying because it's likely that 70%, 80% chance that you're probably going to have a normal pregnancy. But if it's two plus miscarriages, then I think those are the patients that we want to talk to about progesterone administration. Totally agree. That's, that's me too. If you've had two previous miscarriages, you're an otherwise low risk patient. And I've talked to OB. I think, I think oral progesterone is a completely reasonable thing to do. If we can even impact it, you know, those 
those benefits were two to three percent with a trend towards benefit. If we can impact two to three percent of miscarriages in recurrent miscarriage yeah. patients, we can change a lot of people's lives. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. It's very reasonable. That's thing awesome. To do. And, and, and on the same topic, we kind of dredged up the data on aspirin. Man, what did you find? Yeah, out of that? yeah. It's again kind of mixed, man. I wanted to say I, I wanted to say aspirin is is not a thing, and then you kind of dig into it further, and you think, well, maybe it is a thing, and so. It goes yeah. back to this whole idea of inflammation that maybe recurrent pregnancy loss is from an inflammatory cascade and decreased blood flow. So maybe some aspirin will tamp down that inflammatory cascade and allow better blood flow. And it, it seems like that might be true in a very specific subgroup, subgroup right. of patients. And in, in I think we see the aspirin use a lot more, at least I do here in, in Texas. I've seen a lot of patients on aspirin for this is their second miscarriage or whatever, and they're on aspirin from their OB. But what I didn't realize was that a lot of these patients get put on aspirin when they start having vaginal bleeding. But that And that's what a lot of these studies looked at. They looked at intra-contra, you know, intraconception aspirin once the patient knows they're pregnant or like right around when they have vaginal bleeding. And we have to separate that out from patients who are already identified as high risk for recurrent right. miscarriage, right? Right. And that that I think that's where the difference is, right? That's what we found. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The patient that just if you treat it like progesterone, where they get aspirin when they start having vaginal bleeding, there's really never been much no data benefit. to prove that there's a benefit. And there's been a lot of studies on that. But if you're a high lots of good big studies. Good studies. Right? Like high quality data. Randomized control trials. Yeah. And that's why placebo right. controlled. And that's why I wanted to say it wasn't a thing, because if you start it when they, they start having vaginal bleeding, then it's probably too late. But then being right. on aspirin from their OB is a thing. So I don't think for us, in the case of us, when we're talking about trying to find something to give patients, aspirin's not the answer for us in first trimester vaginal no. bleeding. But it may be the answer in OB for high risk patients. Yeah. Well, and then what they found was that in that eager trial, because that eager trial, actually, that, that one looked at 1,228 patients. They looked at aspirin plus folic acid versus folic acid alone. And they found that there was a higher rate of pregnancy in the patients who had had prior miscarriages, but only if the aspirin was initiated prior to the patient's conception. Right. And that was actually in a subgroup separate paper of that eager study. The initial eager study said basically that the, the benefit was wishy-washy. And then the analysis of preconception aspirin, actually. So if you've had a prior miscarriage and you're trying to get pregnant again, and you don't think you're pregnant, you can start taking aspirin and your chances of having a live birth are higher. And additionally, another study found that women who took that aspirin for greater than four days a week had a higher chance of successful pregnancy. So you have to do two things. You have to start the aspirin before you get pregnant and you have to take it for basically the whole week. So at least five days a week. Yeah. Yeah. How about That's aspirin, dude? How about aspirin? Like this drug, man, the MVP of all oh, drugs, man. man. Like, Dude, literally. Yeah, what a drug. I think, and I think we are going to have an aspirin and NSAIDs, probably multi-part podcast yeah. just because underappreciated drugs, I got to say, man, yeah. they're totally an MVP, the MVP, but they're like a 1950s football MVP <laughs> when like people actually had to have talent. Yeah. You, know. <laughs> you sound like my grandpa. Like this, <laughs> yeah. you sound exactly like my grandpa. If we just had aspirin and real football players again, life would be good. <laughs> yeah, <seriously. laughs> but yeah. I think the last part, one more thing to touch on on this is the patient that does have that pregnancy loss. Like we do see those patients that we have no cardiac activity or, or they've completed a miscarriage by the Complete time they can miscarriage, yeah. right? The question that I think a lot of them ask is when you should start trying again. And it was a question that my wife and I had when we had our issues. And 
I didn't know the answer to it. Yeah. Again, there's not a lot of evidence, but there's really kind of two schools of thought here. The first school of thought is, do you need to wait two to three cycles to allow things to normalize? Have a couple normal cycles, things get back to normal versus maybe if we go back to developmentally and some Darwin type stuff, after a miscarriage, maybe you're hyper fertile and you have a greater chance of getting pregnant because you're kind of in the window that you should do it. And there's actually a pretty interesting study that looked at patients that try or couples that had a zero to three month break in between trying for conception and then those that had a a greater than three month. And couples with the zero to three month group, there was 53% versus 36%. So a a 20% increase success rate if you had a short interval trying again. You did not wait. Did not wait. Three cycles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Because that's what I was told by a a few OBs that I've run across before that I've asked that question to. And and it seems conflicting. Some people say don't wait. And then a lot of OBs say, well, your risk of a blighted ovum is higher if you don't wait three months. So I thought, well, that sounds kind of scary. But when we looked into it, it looks like the there's no data to support the need to wait longer than three months. And in fact, trying earlier is probably absolutely fine. But you probably should wait for a cycle to complete just for comfort and and stuff like that and the best sort of outcomes. But that zero to three month window seems to be kind of the money window. And that that data came interesting, came from one of the subgroup analyses of the aspirin study. They just took patients from that study and took the data from there, which I thought was a really interesting study. There's another study that showed the same thing that was published in 2021 that showed that less than three months give you the best chance. So I think that's I think that's the best, one of the best advice that we give. Hey, you had a miscarriage. I, you, this is probably not the moment that you're thinking about when you should try again. But understand that you're probably your best chance is in the next three months because you probably have a yeah. little bit increased fertility in the next three months. If it's something that right. you're trying to do, then then this is probably this is probably the time to do it. Exactly. So to summarize all of this stuff, there's a couple things that we need to debunk or bunk, I guess. Right. Yeah. So basically, for for First trimester bleeding, what's the risk of actually having a miscarriage? Yeah, yeah. Patient comes in with first trimester vaginal bleeding. What's the chance of them having a miscarriage? 10 to 20%. I think that's the good data to tell patients. 10 to 20% of the time, this will end in miscarriage. 80 to 90% of the time, this will go on and you'll have a normal pregnancy. And what if I have a subchorionic hemorrhage and I want to know what's my risk of miscarriage there? Yeah, it depends on the size. Less than 25%, no increased risk. If it's greater than 25%, you're probably around that 20% risk. So you can still say 80% of the time with a subchorionic hemorrhage, you are going to go on to have a, a, a normal pregnancy, but it depends on the size of that. Right. And if I have a miscarriage or the patient has a miscarriage, then what's their chance of having a recurrent miscarriage? Yeah. So I think that one gets a little bit more complicated, but if you have multiple miscarriages, you still have a 70% chance of eventually having a normal pregnancy. So not all hope is lost. So should we put these patients on progesterone or aspirin or progesterone and aspirin? Or what's the take on that that we learned? here? Yeah, aspirin, probably not a thing we're doing out of the emergency department. Something that may have a benefit, but probably has to be done by OB because it has to be done before you get pregnant. Progesterone, on the other hand, if you have two or more miscarriages, there is a signal of benefit in those patients. And I think if you get your OB department on board with you, I think starting some oral progesterone in the low risk 
otherwise healthy, low-risk patient that has had recurrent miscarriage, I think absolutely is a thing. And we could probably impact some lives in a very, very positive way if we did that. Awesome, man. Well, hey, great information. Really deep dive on something that we didn't really know a lot about. Yeah. I thought we knew a lot about yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Guess, but we didn't actually know a lot about it. So <laughs> yeah, it turns out we've just been spewing lies for out. years. It turns out, yeah, the fake news machine. <laughs> that's right, man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so I think this is great for our patients and for those of us that do treat patients like this. And I, I think it's one of the things that I've found most frustrating in emergency medicine because I can never give anybody a straight answer. But I think we kind of have the answers now. Yeah. And I think we're going to explore those a little more. But hey, man, thanks for joining me. That was awesome. Yeah, absolute blast, man.